The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie Happy Wednesday. George Hook here uh, with The Right Hook on Newstalk. Here are some of the best bits that you might have missed on today's programme. The newly elected uh, senator for NUI, himself, of course, senior counsel and columnist for the Sunday Business Post, Michael McDool joins me. Senator McDool, welcome to the programme. Thanks, George. Uh, what do you think about this Brexit thing? Well, I think, first of all, from Ireland's point of view, um, to lose our closest ally in many, many issues in the European Union would be uh, very, very difficult and very problematic and uh, a bit of a reverse for Ireland. So from the Irish point of view, going back to my experience in government, uh, it would be um, a, a bit of a disaster if the United Kingdom voted to leave. But most commentators are saying that if Britain were to leave the United, Kim, King, uh, the, the United Kingdom might leave Europe, it could precipitate other countries who are anti uh, the European ideal to leave. Now, nobody's actually saying Ireland, but in fact, I would have thought uh, Ireland was the one with the greatest reason to leave were Britain to do it. Well, I don't think that necessarily follows, really? George, because first of all, our currency at the moment is the euro. And um, I think that Ireland economically would be in a very, very perilous place uh, trying to refloat its own currency uh, in present circumstances uh, or um, uh, uh, going in with, with uh, sterling, which was, would be the only alternative. Uh, I think, you know, we have, to, we have to look around a few corners here and we have to look to um, what would happen to our financial services industry if uh, Ireland effectively left the European uh, okay. currency system at the moment. I don't think that's a sustainable okay. option. Well, well, let's stay with the Brexit. Let's stay with the British one. Um, because for the first time also, like, Britain is not going to vote as a cohesive unit. Isn't that so? I mean, the, the Scots through the Scottish National Party have a different view from, say, um, the, the south of England uh, or the city of London, no less. Northern Ireland, very close to us, uh, where where we have people who share common government position, like going government in Northern Ireland in opposition here, like Champagne. Uh, what about that? Like, what about the, this? It won't be a cohesive result, would you think? Well, I wrote I wrote in the Sunday Business Post last Sunday that a referendum has been described by a cynic as a process whereby you. Um, get a, an answer you didn't expect to a question you didn't ask. And I, I only quoted that um, description of referendums to underline the fact that, for instance, the DUP in Northern Ireland has taken a, uh, a leave position, whereas Sinn Féin has decided to take a stay position. And um, you have to ask yourself, you know, are arguments that uh, the border would be um, formalised a worry to DUP voters Probably not. That probably instinctively they, they don't care if the border becomes more or less uh, noticeable or more or less of an impediment to travel. Whereas to Sinn Féin voters, uh, it would be, that would be uh, obviously um, a serious issue. And likewise in Scotland, uh, whereas the SNP wants to stay in Europe, um, one of its other big ambitions is to have another referendum, if at all possible. And I made the point that, you know, some SNP supporters may, in the privacy of the uh, polling booth, decide that they will um, vote to leave 
in order to trigger a referendum and to boost the case for, for Scotland leaving the United Kingdom. So there are all sorts of unthought-out um, motives for people uh, in the United Kingdom to um, uh, take different attitudes to the whole question of Brexit. It's not just simply a question of economics. But in the case of David Cameron, who's the key lead man, the cheerleader for for staying, uh, the Tory party, uh, he has he not actually tried to run a kind of a, a fear campaign rather than a campaign based on logic or economics or whatever. It's it's been it's been all about immigration or another European conflict, for God's sake. Well, I, I think I think one of the problems that. Uh, the stay campaign face is um, the question of energizing the stay section of the the stay voters. You look at the opinion polls and it seems fairly uh, close now between stay and leave depending on how, how you do the poll and who, who, uh, who you're polling. But um, <clears throat> it is interesting that the, um, the uh, stay people um, have to come up with convincing arguments to overcome the prejudice of the of the little Englander mentality, let's get out of the European Union. And one of the things that um, I think uh, was noticeable was the use by Cameron of the suggestion that you know uh, if 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 the UK left the European Union, it would increase the chance of of war in Europe. Um, uh, it, do people really believe that? And, and was that a, a claim made too far? Um, Likewise, uh, you know, a lot of the issues um, that uh, would inspire people to vote uh, to leave are kind of um, deep-seated prejudices uh, and uh, real concerns about keeping Britain the way it was rather than the way it is and deep concerns about immigration and whether Britain can really control immigration. And those um, those issues are, are very, very difficult for politicians to speak to, uh, and especially for a Tory politician to speak to. And from that point of view, Cameron uh, has a difficulty, uh, uh, you know, trying to energize and mobilize the stay vote and to give them a really good... Uh, um, sense of determination to go out and vote. But it seems to me there are two issues that um, could well turn this uh, for it for a leave. One actually is immigration and it's not, in Britain it's not actually, I, I suggest to you, it's not actually racist per se. The numbers are staggering of not illegal migrants but people who are absolutely entitled to travel there because uh, they carry European passports. The numbers are are enormous for the British, uh, and in terms of the cost of the work, social welfare system and so on. I think that worries a lot of Britons. And the second thing I think is the fact, because you made the point, you said um, we really will find it difficult to leave because our currency is the euro. The fact that they still have sterling is a very powerful argument that the pain of leaving will be less. Well, that's that. That point about um, uh, the currency ca- uh, argument is correct. I mean, uh, obviously, by keeping their own currency, the British have left themselves in a position to um, uh, make a choice, which for us would be extremely painful and extremely risky, and um, um, uh, in present circumstances, disastrous. Um, uh, but the the real issue, I think, if, in relation to immigration, is this: I mean, if you go to London. 
uh, I think London is by no means a racist city. I think it's a very, very liberal and open and uh, multicultural place. And you walk down a street in London and, you know, you, you look around you and listen to to, to uh, what's being said by passers-by. And you, you immediately get the impression that, the, um, that uh, you know, there is a huge immigrant population in England, as you say, totally legally there. And whether... Um, uh, whether um, the heart of England is happy with this situation or worried about it is is a crucial issue, and whether um, you know uh, the likes of, uh, uh, of, of of the Leave uh, people, whether they can actually um, dog whistle up a kind of a, um, a phobia about about further immigration and convert it into a, a, leave, a leave vote is is one of the crucial issues now. And um, you know that I t- this brings me to the point that I made uh, last Sunday uh, in, in, in Sunday Business Post. Uh, the crucial question is who is more energised and more motivated to vote? You go back, say, to the Shannon referendum here. The opinion polls suggested you know sixty forty or seventy thirty in favour of abolishing it, but it was the retained people who who got on their bikes and went down to the polling stations and said, no, we want to keep the Shannon. And the real question is, which section of British opinion is going to actually um, get up off their backsides and go down to polling stations and put an X in which box? And uh, that really is the imponderable. And no amount of uh, prior opinion polling is going to really tell you which side is more fired up on, the, on, on, on voting. But um, interestingly, the bookmakers think that Britain are going to stay. I'm not by a, a massive majority, like four to one on, as opposed to four yeah. to one against to leave. But but the bookmakers are only reflecting the bets that have been placed. However, though, um, sterling has strengthened appreciably uh, in the re, in in the last month. Does that tell us anything? Well, it, it does tell us some some things. I mean, first of all. Um, Britain's economic growth rate is, is, is relatively strong relative to, uh, to the European one and uh, European uh, uh, monetary policy um, really uh, it has uh, re- been based on reducing interest rates to a, a, a record low level in the hope of stimulating economic growth. Now, I don't know at the moment whether um, uncertainty about uh, about um, uh, uh, uncertainty about uh, about Brexit and wh- which way the referendum will go is having an effect on the value of sterling right now. Um, uh, but uh, clearly, um, uh, it would be a very, very different matter if, for instance, the value of sterling had collapsed in the run-up to, 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 to the referendum. Then I think you'd, 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 um, you'd, you'd see some message that ordinary punters, you know, okay. planning a holiday or whatever, they'd begin to see um, some uh, cost in their own pocket. So, uh, um, yeah, but sorry, Michael. Yeah. There, uh, my guest is Senator Michael McToul. Senator McToul, there is an issue, though, that I get a text which says, like, this has nothing to do with us. I don't care. The fact is, it is huge amount to do with us, I would venture to yeah. suggest. But don't we also, um, I, I'm not sure what the percentage of, of the United Kingdom population is Irish. Do you know what I mean? Well, like, it's, we it's could thought, therefore. That there is, you know, between uh, five and seven hundred and fifty thousand um, people who are um, Irish in Britain with a vote, uh, and um, so therefore we could affect it. Oh, uh, the Irish government's attitude could affect it, and that's why the Irish government, Enda Kenny, is mobilising uh, ministers to to speak in in Britain 
in favour of uh, staying rather than leaving uh, by reference to the Irish interest. Um, and uh, I don't know whether that will have an effect. You'd have to do um, very elaborate polling to work out how the Irish vote in England is at present intending to vote and whether they will, in fact, be... Um, influenced by anything that an Irish teacher could say to them. Yeah, I'm going to be over there for the election. I'm going to broadcast from London. But there is another thing that in the city of London, uh, the young Turks who who make up the city of London financial centre, there's a very strong leave-it view amongst them that they believe the city of London will be empowered by leaving Europe. Well, I think there's two things there. Firstly, um, I think a lot of financial um, uh, executives favour staying, but um, I think um, they they have in the back of their mind, um, and particularly the, the young Turks, as you say, have in the back of their mind the notion that, um, well, keeping Sterling independent and keeping uh, London uh, as an independent financial centre is hugely important, and keeping Britain's autonomy in relation to um, um, financial matters is hugely important. Um, there are a whole series of conflicting currents in people's minds, George. And I mean, I wouldn't, uh, I, I, I really don't think that we're in a very good position from Ireland to judge, um, as I say, which of them will actually click with the, with, the, with the electorate. I mean, one of the English newspapers, the Daily Express, ran a story last week saying that the European Commission had planned to ban toasters uh, and and uh, electric kettles, yeah. uh, and uh, that they had held back this decision pending the referendum. Now that very story, you might think, oh, well, that sounds a bit ridiculous or whatever. But I mean, is that going to have more influence than a Cameron speech about war in Europe? It's very very difficult to know at what level um, yeah. people's um, uh, you know political antennae are affected by what they're hearing and seeing. All right. Thank you so much for joining me, the Independent Senator for NUI, of course, uh, Michael McDool. He's in uh, the former uh, the hotel in Ballsbridge tomorrow, D4, uh, for a Brexit briefing uh, from 6.30pm. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie now, apparently, it's becoming more and more popular uh, to bring your dog into the workplace as a sort of support mechanism. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, here on the program, uh, with the story of the lady who brought a turkey onto the aeroplane uh, to support her because of her fear of flying. And of course, if you watch my beloved the good wife, uh, there's, a, there's a legal guy in it who carries a dog around called Tommy all the time. Well, Ella de Guzman is the owner of Shopper Ella, although Ella is originally from Canada, and dogs at work are common, I have to say, in Shopper Ella. Ella, welcome to the programme. Hello, thanks for having me. Uh, tell me all about these dogs down at Shopper Ella. Well, they're the real bosses of Shopper Ella. I'm not sure if you've ever been to our shop. Well, if there are dogs there, no. <laughs> They'd eat you alive, wouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> I'm terrified of dogs. Well, if you met Louie, he's a little Schnauzer Poodle cross, and Raquel is a Kerry Blue Lab cross. Yeah. And um, they're, they're the real bosses of Shopaella. No, but that's uh, okay now. Uh, you're okay with uh, 
this schnauzer or whatever he is. <laughs> the point is, if you're sitting next to me in news talk and you bring this schnauzer in, I mean, you could bring a Doberman pincher in. It doesn't matter. I'd be terrified of anything oh, really? on four legs. <laughs> but what about us, the people who don't want dogs? What about us? I very, you know, in, in the five years in business, I think I've met two people that were actually scared of Louis in five years in business. So that that verbally expressed their their um, their afraidness of the dogs, you know. Well, Nestle have a thousand employees, and uh, they anybody who wants to bring a dog in can bring a dog in, and apparently, oh <laughs> and apparently you can bring a turkey on an airline if you want to. Um, but but isn't there a danger here? I'm asking you because obviously you're the proponent and I'm the opponent. A dog is difficult um, because it's okay for you, but not for me. Isn't that so? Well, nine, I mean, 99% of the time, you actually don't even know he's in here unless you ask for him. Because he sits behind my chair. So a lot of times, people don't even know they're here. But uh, does one customer he, thought he was a stuffed animal. Like, I mean, he'll come out if you ask him to. So even if people were scared of dogs coming into the shop, they might not have ever even noticed that they were in here. But you know? it, it, do you have the dog close by? Because I understand there's a kind of a, a phrase for this, that he's a kind of an emotional support animal or something. Is, is oh, my he, gosh, yeah. Is, is that what the dog is for you? Or is he, is he just he happens to be your dog? No, he's definitely like a member of the family, you know. So he comes in. I mean, even when we negotiate leases on our buildings, we made sure the landlord had to put in a clause in the lease that uh, we're only going to lease the building if they, if the dogs are allowed to come to work with us. We have two of them. We're allowed two dogs per building. But, 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 <laughs> yeah, see, I'm at a complete loss here. All right. I mean, how do we manage? Like how how do you manage if we have like Nestle have? I don't know. They have, they have a thousand employees, but they all might be in the same building. But I mean, I worked in a in a building in London in Trafalgar Square when I was when I was very young. There had to be five or six hundred people in the building. Now, let's say at a conservative estimate, uh, a third one in three people bring a dog in. So that's the possibility. You have two hundred dogs in the building. Now, oh my God. That would be so much fun. But, yeah, I see what you mean. Um, <laughs> but what about my oh carpet? My what about my carpet when your man decides that he wants to take a leak? Or better still, he takes a leak on my leg. Oh, no. I mean, you'd bring dogs. You wouldn't let dogs come in. I, think, I don't think any owner would bring their dog into work if they weren't trained. I mean, you know, I think that would be very irresponsible of an owner, first of all. But, I mean, these dogs are trained. You know, we can leave Louie in here. We have... I mean, I sell handbags. What do you mean? Excuse me, Ella. I, you see, was, I know nothing about dogs. When you yeah. say trained, the dog barks twice for the toilet and once for his lunch or what? I mean, how do you know he wants to go? <laughs> well, he, he barks. If it, he, does, he only barks if another dog comes in. All right. Yeah, he doesn't. Um, he does think he should be the only dog allowed in the universe. Right. That's Louis. And same but how do you know he wants to go? This is my question. Oh, he doesn't have to go. He holds it. Does he? Yeah, he holds it for eight hours. Of course he does. Do dogs... Do you think about people who leave their dogs at home, I and mean, if you go to work, like, what, what hours are you away? You're away, like, nine to six, let's say. So, commuting time. I mean, your, your dogs are left ten hours on average, you know, on a work week. So, these guys come to work. They hold, they hold all their bathroom breaks in. Sometimes they go in the middle of the day, and we take them out for a walk, but most of the time, they, they're just grand, you know. Yeah, but if, if it was that simple that dogs would do and exactly as they're told, our footpaths wouldn't be littered with dog poo 
or our I public know, parks or whatever. I don't even get me on the dog pool. I get yelled at for, for pooping on the sidewalk, and I'm not the one who's letting my dogs go. But it's, it's a really bad problem that Dublin has as a whole, I think, letting dogs kind of go in it wherever they want. You know, but it should be, yeah, everyone should have poo bags on them. I mean, you know I'm a dog owner. Yeah, but there is a real worry, though, that um, dogs do carry diseases, don't they? No, they do not carry disease. Like, what you're talking rabies. I'm talking ringworm, roundworm, no, all kinds I mean, of they... stuff. <laughs> Lyme, the Lyme's disease is making a huge comeback. No. <laughs> you know, when I came over with Louis, because I, I had to have a special passport for him uh, from Canada, because he flew all the way from Vancouver. And sure, like, they, you, he had to be quarantined for six months in Canada before I could even fly with him. So there's never, I think Ireland's very good at, at making sure that no animals come in with, with bad diseases, like, yeah, but I read somewhere, if, if I forget now, but some sort of Hollywood uh, superstar snuck her dogs into Australia. Or, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I haven't heard about that one. All right. But then also, what about Johnny Depp? Yeah, Johnny Depp snuck him in uh, and wouldn't put him in quarantine or whatever you're supposed to do. I mean, there is a slight... Lo- I mean, I see you as one of the sanest uh, people I've ever had on the programme. But there are quite kind of dog lunatics around the place who think they're, you know, aren't there? Yeah, I'd probably one of those people. No, you're not. You know... I mean, I'm not, like, I would never sneak Louie into another country illegally. But, I mean, I wouldn't rent a building from you if you won't put in your lease that... I okay, I get that. You know, so, like, but, so that's, I mean, some people would say that's kind of crazy because you shouldn't rely, you shouldn't, poke, you shouldn't build your right. business around your dog's... Okay, you know, but yeah, okay. You 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 say I'm not going to get Lyme's disease or ringworm no, or any I, of that kind of stuff. <laughs> what about ticks? Like I'm suddenly sitting sitting down and scratching my backside because some a little uh, uh, insect has migrated from Louis to me. What about that? Oh, but people, you can get that too. Sure, you can come into into the shop with ticks on your head. And what do I do? You know, I mean, humans can get them too. Kids get them all the time. You know. Right. Okay. I mean, as far as I know, any any disease a dog can have, humans can have it as well. So, yeah, but unless I mean, unless you're working in the in the restaurant industry, and you, I don't think you could have dogs in the kitchen per se. But there are, I know, there's establishments around Dublin that allow animals in in the pubs or in coffee shops now, which I think is great. I think Dublin as a whole should be more dog friendly, more of a dog friendly city. But where does it end? I mean, what about cats or cheetahs or uh, rattlesnakes? You're talking or... like endangered species, not like like you know wildlife. I think wildlife <laughs> should be. I think wildlife is a is a very thin line. Bringing like actual. I, I but I've think... seen people with cats walking around town. Have you? Can you hear that? That's Louis shaking his head at you. <laughs> <laughs> but but like I think it was Melanie Griffith, the film actress. I think she used to wander around with like ty- lions and tigers. I mean, she's crazy. All right. I, don't, I think I don't even think you're allowed to have wild no. animals All right. in in our, as, far, as far as I know. I mean, I'm Canadian. So I don't know what the rules are for exotic species. Okay. But I don't think you'd, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks for joining me. Good luck with Chopaella and my regards to Louis. You need to come in and visit us and I'll change your mind, I swear. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Wait till you meet Raquel. She's, she's, she's the, the crazy one. Listen, if you them. can produce Raquel Welsh into Chopaella, 
I'll be there. No, that's her name. That's Raquel's oh, name. Oh. Raquel Welsh. That's that's the Carrie Blue. That's Louis' sister. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks. Take care. All right. Thank you. All right, Ellen Guzman. There, I don't believe it, really. Do you? Yeah. Dogs and dog owners are fear smelly. Says Anna and Sutton. I wouldn't be surprised. Mark and Luke and his six-year-old was pushed over by a big dog on the beach a couple of weeks ago. Dog was only playing, but terrified the child. Of course, dog wasn't on the lead. Uh, uh, I love my horse. Can I bring him to work? Like I told you, she brought a woman brought a turkey on the airplane. There's no ending where this will go. People will soon start bringing their bicycles to work. I'm telling you, there's no end to this. The right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. Anyway, I'm joined by a law lecturer at NUI Galway, a registered Democrat, Bostonian, Larry Donnelly. Larry, welcome to the programme. Great to be with you as always, George. Uh, you're, you think that... Uh, oh, are you a dog lover, by the way, before we go any further? I, I like to I like to mess around with dogs, but I wouldn't want to own one. I like to play with them. They're good fun. They're good crack. But uh, I like to send them home at the end of the day. <laughs> You're worse. Uh, anyway, you think uh, Trump can make it? You've got a kind of strategy for him, have you? Yeah, this is what I was writing about on the Journal.ie this afternoon. Uh, I I don't think if you if I put my hand on my heart, I don't believe uh, that Donald Trump will be the next president. At the same time, however, those who uh, are writing him off uh, or saying that Hillary Clinton must be delighted to be facing Trump, I think, are wrong. Uh, and that's in many respects because uh, Donald Trump's demonstrated capacity to appeal to people uh, beyond the Republican base. I mean, just one thing that sums it up for me uh, is that Don- Mitt Romney, uh, it was his chances of the presidency were gone the minute he was overheard on camera effectively saying uh, that 47 percent of the American people are useless. The fact is, um, those four, those 47% of people who are disadvantaged and people who are disenchanted and who are struggling in the United States, they've rallied very strongly to Donald Trump, despite the fact that they are anything but uh, country club or establishment Republican types. So his appeal is different uh, and broader uh, than the past two Republican presidential candidates, for sure. And what I lay out in the, the column, really, uh, is a number of different items, a number of different fronts. Uh, where I think he needs to to maintain a very careful balancing act uh, in order for him to have a chance at winning this thing. Uh, And I think it comes down to a number of things. On substance, uh, how far can he go um, to placate the Republican establishment whose support he needs, but at the same time continue to espouse views that are contrary to what the the establishment thinks, in particular uh, on things like trade, uh, and on uh, the use of military force around the world. Uh, there's also the matter of his style. Uh, Trump can't change who he is. The style, the bombastic, the over-the-top, the saying it like it is, as some people would say, uh, he can't change that now. But where he deploys it, where he uses it, uh, is, is essential. He can't continue to say things about building the wall. Uh, he can't make ridiculous comments about U.S. foreign debt. But what he can do in that same and keep that style is pound his chest effectively uh, and talk about making America great again. I think people outside the U.S. might have a problem with that, but it plays very well uh, in middle America. Uh, and I think that that's one of the things he, he can do. Uh, right. Obviously, his choice of vice presidential 
running mate will be important. I mean, certainly, you know, there's some talk about that he might choose Newt Gingrich or, or Sarah Palin. Uh, those would be disasters. I think there are a number of very credible people uh, he could select from. Uh, and then there's the matter of how he's going to go negative. Uh, I mean, you know, Hillary Clinton um, is a formidable candidate, but she is widely distrusted in the, by, by the American people. Uh, Trump won the Republican primary in some ways because he was the biggest and the best bully. Uh, but Hillary, uh, on the other hand, he, he needs to he needs to hit her on the trust issues. He needs to hit her about the email survey. He needs to hit her about the Clinton Foundation fundraising. Uh, but at the same time, if he resorts to the kind of petty, uh, nonsensical, misogynistic, in some cases, personal attacks, uh, I think that will backfire. Yeah, but hold on, uh, Larry. And- hold on. You and I, me more than you, have been watching American elections for a long time. One thing is is really interesting about this coming election. You have the two most disliked people in America uh, running for president. So a lot of people could beat Hillary. Hillary is not unbeatable in a contest. Now, everybody is suggesting she's unbeatable this time around because Donald Trump is no good. But, but the thing is, where judging Donald Trump very much by our standards. So I had Jim O'Callaghan, now Fianna Fáil TD on the programme. I had various Irish uh, uh, politicians saying we should ban Trump from from Ireland, you know, this kind of stuff. Um, but Trump is speaking to Americans. He's not speaking to Ireland. There is a major issue in America with undocumented aliens, uh, of which the Irish are a tiny percentage, but nevertheless exist. They I think the idea of saying making America great again is a a very powerful card because Americans believe that they're always hard done by. They go in, they land on Omaha and Utah and they give up their blood and then Europe is suddenly, you know, again them. They, uh, They spend all this money with the Marshall Plan and Europe you know, isn't grateful, and so on, so on, so on. So I think to go to Americans and to say, we're going to be world leaders again, I'm telling you, I think we'll strike a huge chord. I think it does, and that's, and that's why I've highlighted it, George, in my in my advice, and whoever thought I'd be giving advice to Donald Trump, um, but but that's why I've highlighted it as being so important. And what's important to note about the presidential election, we can talk about the United States uh, as a big country, but the reality is in the inner workings of the Electoral College, uh, Trump can only win the presidency if he wins both Ohio and Pennsylvania. And the very points that you just made, George, those are the things that will resonate uh, with ordinary Ohioans and ordinary Pennsylvanians, I think. Uh, and that's what he needs to continue hit, to hammer away at. Um, you know, the, the counterpoint to that uh, and the reason why I still think uh, or one of the reasons why I still think Hillary Clinton will will win. Ultimately, it might be ugly. It might be close. But that has to be counterbalanced against uh, the fact that Trump's negatives are so bad, it's going to take, you know, it's going to be, uh, you know, his numbers with Hispanics, who are so big in number now, his numbers with women, uh, they're so bad, it's going to be very, okay. very hard Let's uh, to take, overcome all right. that. Let's take the women. Right. Let's take American women. It was suggested that Bill Clinton became president because the soccer moms in America voted for him. They voted for an adulterer. They voted for a man who in 
a, a different way uh, was as uh, unfriendly to women as Trump is, but in a completely different way. He cheated on his wife. He, you know, and uh, she after the New Hampshire primary, she stands by him, but she's not Tammy Wynette, but she stands by him. So the thing is, American women may well vote for Trump because they don't like Hillary. Well, I, I think you have a point. I think he'll do better um, with women than his negative ratings might might suggest. But I would draw a very big distinction between him and Bill Clinton, however, both, again, in style and in substance. If you look at uh, in style, uh, Bill Clinton's tone and his manner were much, much different when he was a presidential candidate than Donald Trump's has been. And if you look at substance, if you look at uh, a series of issues uh, that are important to uh, to women, uh, Bill Clinton is on their side, whereas I think Donald Trump would no, be on quite a different no, side. No, I accept that. But let me pose another question for you, right? Um, we have been used to, and, and the first election I remember is is Eisenhower. Um, now, and that's going back to 1950. Now, at that point, American politics was pretty predictable. There was a Republican candidate, and there was a Democratic candidate, and that was the way it was. If you look across Europe, today, you and Ireland is no different. We are seeing sea change in politics. Minority government in Ireland. Minority government in in, uh, Portugal, depending on a fearsomely right-wing party. Uh, Government in Denmark. A liberal nation is is, is uh, predicated now on another right-wing government, so it has a very strong attitude towards migrants, which is very unlikely. Politics is not the politics, Larry, that you and I grew up with. It's a different politics, and Trump may well be riding that wave. I think he already has. I think he's, he's done so very successfully. Uh, I think so much of what's happened in the United States, you know, and it's, it's true to a lesser extent perhaps in Europe, uh, is that income inequality is fueling a lot of this, and, and especially, uh, I suppose, in, to speak frankly, in white America and in middle, so-called middle America, where people uh, are sick and tired of being left behind. And these people, uh, a lot of them would have been uh, on both sides. Yeah, they would have voted Republican, they would have voted Democrat, yet both parties uh, in their messages, in particular their internationalist outlook, I should say, uh, have slowly very much drifted away from mainstream middle America. Middle America is very much inward-looking, is very insular, is worried, and with good reason, and I should say, given what's happened to them as a result of so-called free trade deals, as a result of military adventurism, Trump, and and also in a different way, Sanders have exploited this very well. So to an extent, to an extent that's probably unprecedented, this is not going to be fought out along traditional right-left ideological lines. And one of the things I think that the results of the Republican primaries have shown is that despite what Republican conservatives say, oh, Trump can't do this, he will never win because he's, uh, he stands here and stands there, uh, they're not as ideologically, uh, I suppose, possessed as the right would like them to believe. And I think that's also true on the left. All right, thank you so much. That was Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at NUI Galway, whose uh, column today on this very topic was published in journal.ie. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie
situation now is that uh, the fixed fines brought in by Pascal Donahue for cyclists, we've got some information that uh, almost 600 of them were penalised over a period of six months. Uh, Frank MacDonald, himself of Keen Cyclist and formerly the Environment Editor for the Irish Times, joins me. Are you outraged that uh, 600 of your fellow pedalists were fined? Well, if they broke the law, they should certainly pay the price, um, and I would have no sympathy for them as such. Uh, but I, I, again, would like to see the rules of the road enforced across the board and not just the targeting of cyclists. Well, how can you talk about the targeting of cyclists when in that six-month period there were 20,000 speeding motorist fines and 600 uh, cyclists? I well, mean, you can't uh, say targeted when 20... You could say that motor cars were targeted. You can't say well, cyclists were targeted. Well, I suppose, I suppose that if those figures are correct, and I'm not sure if they apply to the whole country or just to Dublin, um, it's, it, that, that isn't clear from what I've read. Um, but certainly, um, you know, I mean, for example, if you were to take the, the uh, zones of the Liffey Keys where there is a 30-kilometre-an-hour speed limit, I mean, that is widely breached. Uh, on a daily basis uh, by by motorists. In fact, the vast majority of, of motorists using the Liffey Keys don't observe it at all. And there's no indication to me that it's actually being enforced. Um, and that is something that is an official city bylaw. And, um, you know, where are the figures showing uh, the number of motorists who've been prosecuted or got pe- fixed penalty notices for breaching the 30 kilometre an hour limit. Um, I mean, there has to be either either the law is the law or it's not. Um, and I think the problem here is that that the Gardaí don't believe in the 30 kilometre uh, speed limit and therefore they don't enforce it. Correct. Nobody does. Any law, any law to be observed... Uh, must be sane and sensible, must be accepted by the general populace and must be enforced. They're the keys of any law, yeah, no matter what I they agree. are. Like, the, 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 the great advantage of kilometres, see, the great advantage of kilometres is it makes it sound very quick. It's 30 kilometres. If but you convert it... Correct. When you yeah. convert it into old money, that's right. Uh, walkers are travelling almost <laughs> at that speed. <laughs> no, they're not. And they're cyclists not 18 kilo, 18 and cyclists an are uh, routinely. Uh, uh, are, are, I think it's about what is it five 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 miles an hour. Or cyclists an hour or are routinely like breaking. Yeah, but there's no question, George. There's no question about it that you know uh, cyclists do break the law, and you know uh, I I myself, um, you know, would have done it in the past, but I, I don't do it anymore. And in fact, I've given out to cyclists who, who, who persist in cycling across the Millennium Footbridge on, and saying to them very directly that they're bringing cyclists into disrepute by doing that. Um, and, you know, anyone who cycles up a, a one-way street in the wrong direction is clearly a danger to the public. There's no question about that because, you know, people get used to one-way streets and they know the traffic is coming in one direction rather than, than the other. And then suddenly 
frequently there's a cyclist. You know, this happens frequently on Exchequer Street, for example, or Wicklow Street, um, where you'll see cyclists going in, going in the wrong way. And that is something that should be clamped down on. There's no question about it because it represents a serious danger to pedestrians. But Kieran Cough, Councillor Kieran Cough, who's the great apologist for cyclists, uh, says it's outrageous that 600 people who got fines, you know, and that uh, why aren't they targeting motor cars? And the outrage, the words, his word, not mine, the outrage of motorists parking on cycle lanes. The reason they park on cycle lanes is all the cyclists are on the road. I think that that isn't really true. The reason why they park on cycle lanes is because, as Kieran Cuff pointed out, uh, they're they're nipping into the the, the centra store or whatever um, to get a, a few groceries or whatever it is, and um, and they just park uh, willy nilly in the cycle lane, um, and the cyclists then are forced out onto the road in the path of other oh traffic uh, as a result of that. Okay. And that is something that that has that happens on a daily basis in Dublin and in every other part of Ireland, um, yeah. and it's something, something that should be stopped. Let's look at the targeting, right? Um, according to Kieran Cough, there are 10,000 cyclists a day using the road, right? Now, yeah. even on, on just yeah. on a five-day week, on a business week, that's 50,000 cyclists a week. That's 200,000 cyclists a month. That's mm-hmm. 1.2 million cyclists in the six-month period, well, and six hundred of them, George, there's no doubt about that. And six hundred of them got tickets. Yeah, well, I, I, I wouldn't say that it's it's high. I mean, uh, Kieran Cuff argued that it was on the high side. I don't think it's particularly high. And given the level of violations that I witness on a daily basis, uh, I'm not surprised. You know that that six hundred fixed penalty notices have been issued to cyclists who break the law, who travel up. Uh, one-way streets in the wrong way and who cycle on footpaths and who generally uh, cycle without due care and consideration, as it's called. And that is something that we all have to learn. But, I mean, the, the basic problem, George, is that this is not a civilised city in the way that, say, Amsterdam or Copenhagen or Paris or Barcelona are. You know, it just isn't civilised. We're just down out of the trees in terms of developing urban sensibilities. And that applies as much to uh, the way cyclists behave and the way motorists behave uh, as anything else. All right, but hold on. You go in, next time you go into the Irish Times office, go into the archives and look at pictures of uh, late 1950s, early 60s Dublin. And the number of cars in Delir Street, O'Connell Bridge, all this. Tiny compared to now. Yeah. Zillions of cyclists, zillions of them. But what you do? There were many, many more cyclists in the past than there are now. But But none of them were going to. None of them were going to red lights. Yeah, but well, I don't. No, no, they, they were weren't. They um, weren't. I mean, uh, I'd say they probably were. Um, but, you know, there is an aggression, an aggression in the air nowadays, um, which wasn't there in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, and there is increasing competition for road space. And, you know, that road space needs to be allocated in a sensible way. And that's the reason why we have bus lanes and cycle lanes and all, and, and all the rest of it in recent years. But we were coming very late in the day to all of that. You know, other 
cities have have made far more, okay. much more progress in relation to catering for cyclists okay. and pedestrians. And you know, like one of the key tests is going to be uh, the uh, the proposed pedestrianisation of, of of College Green. I mean, turning College Green into a huge plaza, which would essentially be just available to cyclists um, okay. on on a designated route yeah. through the plaza and pedestrians. And you know, that is going to represent okay. if it does get through. Uh, it's going to represent a huge change in the uh, the whole way transport itself functions in the city centre. All right, but cyclists you know. are modern, are Ireland's version of matadors. We held a we <laughs> held a poll. We held a poll for for no government, but instead a benevolent despot to ring win the country on this program. The overwhelming winner with ninety percent of the vote was Michael O'Leary, and Michael O'Leary shares my view shoot cyclists on site uh, no that's very extreme and I don't I don't think you should be adopting that kind of a philosophy George really because you know cyclists are vulnerable road users <laughs> um, they really are and you know they're they're very exposed and uh, are, we are what about uh, pensioners who are trying to cross the road on well, one way streets walk on pavement walk on pavement I agree with you I mean I think that all of that breaking red lights and that is, happens every day of the week I mean I said to you ages ago, we should spend some time at the junction of South Great Georgia Street and Dame Street someday and just count the number of cars that break through on the red as they're travelling uh, from uh, from Dame Street down towards College Green. It's absolutely shocking. And, you know, there's rarely a guard there okay. uh, to deal with it. Um, some of them uh, come down the bus lane on Georgia Street into Dame Street and some of them, sometimes they get caught when the guards are there. Right. But more often than not, the guards are not there, so they just the motors continue flouting the law as they as they as they All frequently right. do, and that is something that has to stop. And you know we need a sensible okay. approach to this. We we all need to we all need to become a little bit more civilized in our behaviour, right. and that applies to cyclists as well as to motorists. All right, okay. Well. The civilized Frank Macdonald, formerly the uh, environment editor at the Irish Times. Well, thank you for listening to that digest of news from. The Daily Right Hook. But of course, you can hear the full version in all its uh, excitement between 4.30 and 7 every day, Monday to Friday, here on News Talk. Do take care.